How's it going tonight for you? Good. Yeah, I mean, that's such a, yeah, what a rhetorical, what a lame rhetorical question. I, I hope it's going well for you tonight. It's always, and that's always the weirdest thing, too, is when you say something. Thank you, Josh, and the band, too, by the way. I don't want to rush past that, um, and they're going to be back in a little bit. It's so weird, too, like when you say that, like, hey, how's it going tonight? And, and typically the response is like, hey, how you doing? And you would say, woo, which is kind of weird because you don't do that in any other context. Like at work tomorrow, if someone goes, hey, how you doing this morning? Woo! You don't really do that, do you? And so it's an incredibly unrealistic expectation that I have that you should cheer when I ask you that question. So I hope you're doing well tonight. Uh, my name is Jarrett Stevens. Uh, I was here last week, and I'm here, I'm here this week as well. It's good to be back with you guys. I'm from, I live in Atlanta, Georgia, but I, I represent the shy from Chicago. That's kind of where some of my roots are, but living in Atlanta and uh, uh, made the drive up here to be with you guys tonight. This is a very kind of cool special thing. I've known David now for a while um, and, uh, you know, heard a lot about Charlotte One and have some friends that are kind of involved, Stuart and a friend of mine, Joel, and some other folks that kind of come up here, right? Okay, whoo! Next time you see them, say that. And, um, and so it's just kind of cool to see this and actually be here and when, you know, to come to this location to be really right in the heart of the city in this great old church where there's still flannel graphs flowing everywhere and like, you know, it's, I'm sure there's overhead projectors somewhere in the building. Like, it's just really, you guys don't even, I don't even know if you know how special this is, uh, a thing like Charlotte One, where people from all over the city, from all over the area, and from tons of different churches gather together and say, you know, there's a ton of things that could divide us and separate us, but we gather together in the name of Jesus Christ because we love him and we love this city, we love this area. I, that's a very cool and special thing. And so for me, it is, uh, it's just a, a, honestly, it's a privilege to be with you guys again this week uh, as we kind of do this little uh, thing called consider. As we're considering last week, we considered the poor, and, or last week we considered the rich, and tonight we're going to consider the poor. Left uh, my wife and I, Jeannie, we came up here together today and left our kids uh, with like 20 bucks. Uh, they're, well, they're three and six months old, so we figure they're, they're ready for that kind of experience. So we left them with 20 bucks. And we're like, here's the number to Domino's. And so they're doing great. We just checked in with them. They're doing great. Uh, it's a... It's honestly like, it, we, it's so good to get out, but we also just miss them terribly. And like at dinner, we're like, oh, isn't this so good? Do you have any pictures? And we were like going through our phones to get pictures of our kids. So we're kind of just fiends when it comes to our kids. And it's a big week for us, you know, because uh, I mean, obviously the election's coming up next week, but there's a major important day that comes before that, and that's Halloween. I think that's a, a, a very big national event for us to celebrate the devil's day in that way. And... Um, <laughs> It's a big day in the Stevens house. We get all hyped up on Halloween. And so it's just really fun because this year is the first year our three-year-old Elijah was able to choose his own costume. And so his six-month-old little sister, Gigi, she has no choice. It's like, you're going to be a ladybug. That's just kind of how it is. <laughs> just deal with it, all right? Just deal with it. You're a ladybug. But he got to choose. And so it was a big deal. I mean, we tried on several Spider-Man costumes and Batman costumes. And, you know, thank God the Buzz Lightyear costume wasn't in stock. And, uh... Finally, it comes down. This is the truth. I'll, I wish I had a picture to show you. It finally comes down to like the big wall of costumes, and he goes to the UPS costume <laughs> and goes, I want that one, Daddy. I'm with the UPS man. And so we got him, and I think that's so cute. And then I got home, I'm like, Well, how do you know about the UPS man, son? Has he been coming to the house a lot lately? Like, what's a. Like, I had questions. I had ethical questions about this costume, and thankfully, no, that's not the case at all. I just, our son loves UPS. He's really excited. Like, he's so, he has the full costume with the hat, and he's walking around with a little UPS box to get his candy in. I'm like, that's a great costume. 
I honest, I'm going as the garbage man. Like, I wish I would have thought of that. That's brilliant. So, big, big week for us this week. So, like I said, very, very good to be with you guys. Uh, last week, we did talk about uh, what it means to be rich. And if you weren't here last week, it was a big week because we all left here rich. Like, we walked out of the room uh, really, really, really rich. And uh, we didn't uh, necessarily hand money. It wasn't like Oprah's big give kind of thing. We, uh, we just looked at some of the realities of the world we live in, right? That if you make more than $34,000 a year, you are in the top 4% of income earners of wealth in the world. So if you make more than $34,000, again, we're talking to school teachers when we say that, but when you make more than that, you're in the top 4% of the world's wealth. And so we kind of looked at some of the reality of that, of like, okay, maybe some of the stuff that God has to say to us in the Bible isn't for those rich people over there. It's actually for us, because if you look at the world we live in, we are rich. And so what do you do with that? What do you do with the fact that you actually are? Now, in our culture, in our society, that's not the message you get at all. But the reality is you and I are rich. And the problems that we have really honestly are rich people problems when you look at the world around us. And so what do you do with that? Do you go to guilt? And uh, what we did last week, we said, no, the, the best first response is gratitude. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. I don't understand how God's economy works, but for whatever reason, God, you have blessed me, and I am rich, and I thank you, God. And so this week, we considered the rich last week. Now we're going to consider the poor and what our impression is of the poor. And I just am so glad tonight that even here among us, we have brothers and sisters who would be classified in our economy as poor, who fall kind of on the underside of the American project and are over, oftentimes overlooked. And so you are in a very unique setting. We are in a very unique room. And I welcome our brothers and sisters who are here tonight who find themselves in that place. What does it mean? What is your opinion about the poor? And how often do you really consider what it means to be poor? Do you, how often do you consider those who are poor according to our world standards and our country's standards. What does that mean? What is your impression, the image that you get, the thoughts that flash through your mind when you consider that? See, for us, we live in a culture that, honestly, we know that our lasting opinions are oftentimes formed by first impressions. And so somewhere down the line, there's a first impression that you have that probably has formed a lasting opinion, be it right or be it wrong. You have an opinion when it comes to everything in the world, not just the poor, but all kinds of different things. You have an opinion that typically based on a first impression, right? We do this all the time when you watch the news and you see whatever stupid thing some stupid celebrity did this weekend. You look at that and go, oh, yeah, yeah okay. I get what they're doing there with the no underwear thing. I got that. Okay, I see there's no, clearly they have no morals, they have no judgment. And in a first impression, you form a lasting opinion. That's just kind of how our world works. We do it all the time. We do it with people that you see kind of how, how they're dressed, right? You, you know, can I see someone in this room tonight? Some of you dressed up, some of you are less than dressed up. And so you, you make, right, you look at someone, and that first impression you can form typically what is a, a lasting, sometimes even a lifelong opinion about them. Even like in the first couple minutes that we've, that I've been up here on stage so far, you have been forming opinions about me really without honestly even knowing me. I mean, you're looking at me go, okay, what's this guy all about? Is tonight going to be helpful, right? Is tonight going to be encouraging? Is tonight going to be fun? You know, is this guy even know what he's talking about? Is this going to go long tonight? 
Like, how can one person embody such wisdom and good looks at the same time? Like, I know, because I know what you're thinking, but I know what you're thinking. So that's kind of just how it works, right? We do that. We are so quick to form these lasting, sometimes even lifelong opinions based on just strictly first impressions. We do it with others all the time. And honestly, it works both ways. We are constantly trying to make a good first impression to others, aren't we? Like, we know how it works, and so we work really, really hard to do that. Uh, How many of you within the last year have had to go to a job interview? Right. That's like when you found out where your iron and ironing board was, you know, or that you didn't have one, you know, and so it's like, you know, because that's important, right? You have to kind of look good, and, and you have to make the truth sound better, right? You have to help the truth on a resume, that's because that's because you know that first impression is really all you get because that can lead to a lifelong opinion about you and whether or not you get a job. You know this if you've been on a, a first date, and I'm not going to have you raise your hand if that's been the case, if you have or haven't been on dates, but if you've been on a first date or if you've ever done like eHarmony or Match.com or God forbid speed dating, if you've ever done anything like that, you know how quick you have to make that good first impression because that could lead to a lasting opinion about you. And so suddenly you're making the truth sound a whole lot better, like that trip to Cancun made you an international traveler. You know, and so that's just kind of what we do because we know that's just how it works. That's just, we know that's how it works. And when it comes to considering the poor, oftentimes our opinion about poor people those in poverty, homeless, under-resourced, oftentimes is formed by a first opi- like impression that we may have had somewhere down the line. And it's significant for us to understand where that came from. And it's not, like I said, it's not just like on a personal level, right? I mean, th- well, okay, this is, I'll tell you this real quick. I, for me, it's, I get all caught up in that, like m- trying to make a good first impression, working really hard to do that. And God has been consistently faithful with breaking me down in those moments. Like, God just doesn't really ever allow me to, to get away with that fully. Uh, a couple of years ago, this would be about six or seven years ago, there was this really kind of influential Christian leader, speaker, author, person that came to our church, and I really have been impacted by this person. So I was like, hey, listen, can I, can I take them to the airport? Is that possible? Like, you know, I'll, I'll, whatever it takes. Like, can I just get some time with them? I, I'm not a stalker, right? I mean, I know his waist size is 34 and the length is 32, and he wears a 44 inseam coat. It's not the point. The point is, this person's had impact on my life, and can I maybe just get, and you know, they're like, okay, yeah, whatever. You can drive them to the airport, you know, and so I was so excited. Like, I had a list of questions that I was ready to ask this person, because I wanted, you know, to kind of understand and have this good connection with this pretty significant, like, Christian leader, and so we're, this is when we were living in Chicago, and you want to go back to the airport, you need to grab something to eat. He's like, dude, can you take me to get something to eat real quick? I'm like, yes, 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 sir. Yeah, I mean, yes, yeah, wait, right, sure. Here we go. I love you. Okay, here we go. And so um, it was awkward. It's just awkward. The whole thing was awkward. And so I'm like, all right, yeah, you have to have a Chicago hot dog. Like, you have to have a Chicago hot dog. That's just kind of the deal. And so I drove him to the local kind of like Chicago hot dog place. I'm like, oh, yeah, you got to just get it done up and get it done up. And I ordered one as well because I like Chicago hot dogs. And so I didn't want to make this person eat by themselves. So, but we're going to eat in the car while we're driving to the airport. So I'm driving and eating and asking through my list of questions. It's really a prime moment for me. What I didn't pay attention to is how many peppers they put on Chicago hot dogs. I, knew, I know this when I'm in my right mind, but when I'm in my stalker mind, I don't think of those things. <laughs> and so I just didn't pay attention. And what t- Jeannie, my wife will tell you, like, I love hot food. Every time it gives me violent hiccups. I have like spasmic 
violent. You, my lungs literally come up and then go back down every time. I just did not. And so this is exactly what happens. We're not even five minutes from the hot dog place. I'm like, so in your last book, you, sorry, I'm like trying to do my like, in that book you wrote about, and I'm like so loud that he and this elder that was with him, they kept looking at each other like, we got in the crazy car. Like clearly, <laughs> where was their guidance? And, and, and I am no exaggeration. The entire 25-minute ride to the airport, about every 13 seconds, was a violent hiccup. And so I'm clearly that guy to him now. Many years later, I'm that crazy hiccuping guy who, you know, ripped a piece of his shirt off when he left. So <laughs> that's not the point. So th th you understand what I'm saying? Like, we do it all the time on a personal level. It's very significant to us. And people do that with you all the time. And people do that with groups of people all the time. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn and talk to the person next to you. We're going to think about the impression that the world has of those people that call themselves Christians. So I want you to think about that, because we do this all the time. It's significant for what we're going to look at, the text we're going to look at here in a second. I want you to think about what does the world, what is their opinion, based maybe on first impressions or not, of Christians in general? What have you heard? What would you say is their lifelong lasting opinion, probably formed by, from a first impression, of Christians, all right? So here's what I want you to do. You're going to turn to the person next to you. You're going to talk for like 72 seconds, all right? We talked about this last week, like, you know, introverts are freaking out right now and do, doing their little asthma deal, like, it's okay, right? Introverts, right? Here's my word to you, be bold. Extroverts, be brief, okay? So, 72 seconds, turn to the person next to you. What is the world's, or our country's, at least, impression of Christianity in general? Everyone talks to someone. I will stop you in 72 seconds. Go. All right. All right, just by kind of show of hands, uh, and you don't need to like continue to comment on this, like just by show of hands, how many of you, something like hypocritical came up? <laughs> oh, really? Uh, how many of you like judgmental came up? We're doing awesome so far. Um, Closed-minded or something like that, yeah. I mean, all right, wow. Bat in the thousand. All right, so like it doesn't take much, right? We can do a little exercise like that to realize that there is a very real opinion that the world, right or wrong, earned or not so, it, there is an opinion that our country, that people around us have, of those who would call themselves Christians, uh, based probably somewhere on an impression they got, either personally or from watching someone on TV or something like that. Just by a show of hands, how many of you uh, use the word selfless? Oh, really? All right. Uh, loving. <laughs> okay. It's you, I think. Do you too. All right. Good. <laughs> You must be very wonderful people. Uh, uh, concerned for the poor. Yeah. All right, one. I mean, this is kind of the reality of the world that we live in right now, right? Something that was so clear has been so clear throughout the whole of Scripture, throughout the whole of the life of Jesus, somehow now has gotten to the bottom of the list. And the things that have replaced it towards the top are judgmental, hypocritical, closed-minded, hateful, self-consumed. That's what's taken the place of loving, selfless, sacrificing, servant, friends with, not only like, you know, aware of, but concerned about in relationship with those who are poor, overlooked, marginalized, under-resourced. What, what's, what's happened? What's happened in the last couple, 2,000 years or so? What has happened?
And I'm not going to have you turn to the person next to you and, and share this, but I want you to think about this for a second. If we were to go and talk to your roommates uh, or your coworkers uh, or your family, and we ask them what their impression about Christianity was, their opinion based on your life, what would they say? If, if we were able to kind of just zoom that one in and go, okay, you know, you know this person, you know Kelly, like, okay, based on Kelly's life, what, what is your opinion about Christianity, or more specifically, the Jesus she follows? What matters most? What tops the list? What, what do you think they would say? What do you think they would say? What would top that list? And we're going to talk about that just in a little bit. I want to show you, though, a very, uh, to me, a passage that you may be familiar with that kind of reprioritize things in light of the impression that Jesus gave, the first impression that Jesus gave about what matters so deeply and centrally to the heart of God. What is it that sort of tops the list, for lack of a better phrase, when it comes to the life and ministry of Jesus? And for any one of us who calls ourselves a follower of Jesus, the life and ministry that we are invited into and even called to. So if you have a Bible, you can open to Luke chapter 4. We're looking at a, a pretty cool, like there's a lot going on contextually in this passage. Luke chapter 4. Let me just give you a little bit of background. Um, this is the very sort of front end of the public ministry of Jesus, right? So this is the last three years of his life. And so we, we, there's a lot like that happens kind of at the front end, and we know a lot about sort of that, like his birth and some stuff happens when he's 12. And then there's these really, these 18 or so silent years where we just, we don't have much of an account of anything. And then a lot starts to happen really quickly. And so that's right at the front of all of that is this. Jesus uh, is now, has been baptized by his cousin John, right? And so there's, there's kind of a, this following that's starting to happen. People are, are trying to understand who this person is that is so special that everyone went out to see John baptize people, and they went out to hear John preach, and people were repenting and coming to know the Lord. And then Jesus comes, and that just totally overturns those tables. And so now people are fascinated with who this character is. But he hasn't said, as far as we have recorded in the Bible, one public thing yet. He's just been baptized by John, then he goes straight into the wilderness, into seclusion, where he's tempted by Satan himself for 40 days while he's fasting and just, you know, beginning. Who knows what's happening in those 40 days other than this constant scrutiny and temptation by Satan himself with, you know, his physical needs, with wealth and with power. And he comes out of that, and it's right out of those 40 days that we get to kind of catch up to the passage we're going to look at here tonight. Jesus is actually coming back to his hometown of Nazareth, right? And so the crowd's kind of like, they know who Jesus is. They're like, oh, hey, it's like a hometown hero. Like, here he comes. He's coming back. And so he's coming to, like, to their town, to his hometown, to preach his first, what we have, sort of recorded sermons. This is a very significant deal. And so a lot of his family and friends are there who knew him when he was younger. And now, like, they're hearing the buzz about what's going on about him. Then you have a lot of kind of, you know, skeptical people who have gathered around to sort of hear who is this person that comes from our hometown and what's going on here. And do I, like, do I get a backstage? pass, and you're like, they're trying to understand, like, what's going on here, and Mary's there, like, his mother Mary is there, and, like, she's got up signs to say, you know, I love my boy, and it's a very American Idol kind of scene going on there, so that's what's going on. Jesus goes straight to, uh, to preach, actually, in the synagogue, because he's a rabbi. Jesus is a rabbi, and so he's, you know, continuing in his custom of being a rabbi. He's going straight to the synagogue, 
And uh, we'll, we'll pick up right here. Jesus, uh, like chapter 4, verse 17-ish or so. Uh, Jesus goes in on the Sabbath to preach in the synagogue. They hand him a scroll uh, of the prophet Isaiah, and this is what it says. You can see it on the screen. Now, I'm going to stop at certain words, and I want you to say that word out loud. Is that cool? Can we do that? Because this is pretty significant, okay? So when I stop, you, you speak up. Got it? All right, this is what Jesus says. This first recorded words, the first impression that we get from his public ministry Verse 18, he says this, quoting Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the what? Poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the who? Prisoners. And recovery of sight for the? To set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Can we just camp out right there? Okay. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor and to proclaim freedom for prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If you have a Bible with you, have you ever heard like some of your translations say the year of what? Jubilee. We don't use that word nearly enough in our everyday language. Like, it's just a word you have to act out, like jubilee. I don't think he said it like that, but, but that word literally means, jubilee literally means this unceasing favor, this overflowing favor and goodness, this irrational overflow of blessing. That's jubilee. Jesus says, the year of the Lord's favor is another way of saying that. This is his first recorded sermon. This is so great. Then he rolls the scroll back up and gives it to the attendant and walks over and sits down. You know, and you just got to feel like everyone in the room's like, what is going on? What is he, uh, what is he doing? Is this like a, a one act? What, I don't understand what's going on here. And then Jesus simply says, you can see there in the text, he says, today, in your presence... The scripture is fulfilled. I am he, the one that Isaiah prophesied for. I am the long-awaited Messiah. And this is what I'm about. And this is who I've come for, and this is what I've come to do. This is incredibly significant. That This is the first recorded sermon. This is the first impression publicly that we get of the ministry of Jesus. This is the text that he pulls from about the poor, the oppressed, the blind, the forgotten, the overlooked, the prisoner, the neglected. I have come for them, and I am he. I am that long-awaited Messiah, and this is where I'm establishing my kingdom. This is incredibly significant, incredibly significant. Now, we live in a very politicized kind of culture right now, don't we? I mean, we're just six days away from the election, and there is so much spin and control and commercials and hype and PR going on over the last, it feels like this campaign started nine years ago. It's been going on for so long, and it's finally coming to an end, and we've seen so much PR and control and spin going on every day. And had Jesus hired a, a PR firm in his day to help launch his public ministry, if he kind of brought in a team of experts, you know, and all the folks you see on CNN, you know, they're gathered there to help guide Jesus into this successful public ministry, this is not where they would have led him to start. Jesus, what the, oh, hold on, we cut that mic for a second. Like, Jesus, come here, we talked about this. 
You don't, you don't play to the margins. You play to the base. You know, you got to play to the center. That's where your power's at, right? It, you don't play, you don't talk about the poor. You can't, they don't, they can't even register to vote, really, Jesus. I mean, let's be honest. You know, they, they won't even, it doesn't, you can't get anything from them. So why would you say that you're for them? Why would you say that you're for people who typically, seemingly, according to our culture standards, have nothing to offer you in return? That's not where you start a public ministry at least a successful one. I mean, Jesus, honestly, if you kind of go on this way, we see this thing lasting two, three years tops. Thank you, Bible scholar. Thank you, seminary student. I need you. All right. You see what I'm saying? This is a very interesting place for Jesus to start. It's a very interesting first impression for him to give, and yet if you continue to read through the Gospels, you see again and again and again, who is it that like a magnet Jesus is drawn to? Who is it that out of the forgotten corners of society is drawn to him? It's prostitutes, tax collectors, fishermen, the poor, the weak, the crippled, children, women, people who in that society had no standing. Jesus now elevates and says, no, 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 no. here we are. This is the kingdom of God. And I'm asking you not just to consider the poor, but to come be with the poor. In fact, Jesus goes on to say in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of God. You get the kingdom of God because you know that dependency that poverty evokes and demands. You know. Jesus, you know, he goes on to say, you read further on in Luke, Jesus will go on to say, look, I've not come for those who think they're healthy. It's not who I've come. I've come for those who know that they're sick, who know that they need help. That's who I've come for, to seek and save the lost, to heal the sick, to give sight to the blind, to declare God's unceasing, irrational, overabundance of blessing to. This is the first impression that Jesus gives us. This is the first recorded sermon we have of his. This is what kind of like tops the list for him. And we see it lived out throughout the Gospels again and again and again. This is who Jesus is drawn to. This is who's drawn to Jesus. And there's a crowd that's always hovering just outside the perimeter of the kingdom. Again and again and again, there's a group of people who just can't seem to get this. Do you know the name of that religious group that's always everywhere Jesus is at? Does anyone know? The Pharisees. The Pharisees were these religious elite, these religious leaders who just could not understand this type of kingdom because they had built their lives and they had built their careers on stringent rule keeping, on exclusive sort of, you know, circling up of those who are the religious elite of condemnation through an unbeatable system of rules and regulations. And anyone who didn't measure up was thrown out, was cast aside, was deemed unclean, unimportant, insignificant. Again and again and again and again, we see that crowd at a distance from this crowd because they are uh, self-obsessed. They are, primary concern is self-preservation. They are an incredibly judgmental 
group of people. If you read about the Pharisees, incredibly judgmental, and Jesus called them straight out. The first time we really see this word, the word hypocrite, Jesus uses this word to describe them. They are fake. They are hypocrites. He calls them like whitewashed tombs. You're like the prettiest corpses of the bunch. You know, this is what Jesus calls them. We see these words, again, greedy, not loving, even spiteful and hateful. Does that ring a bell to any of us in this room of maybe words that we mentioned earlier? of what our country has come to, or our world has come to think of those who call themselves Christians. See, not a lot, sadly, has changed. Not a lot has changed, unfortunately. And so as we consider the poor, we have to consider the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is love, is friendship, is recovery, is restoration, is healing, is hope. That's what Jesus is about. That's what he does again and again and again and again throughout the Gospels. That's where he is. That's who he's with. This is not just sort of a, um, an idea, a strategy for Jesus, because Jesus goes on to say in the Gospels that, you know, like foxes have dens and homes to go to, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The truth of the matter is, whether like we wrestle with this or realize this or not, you follow a homeless rabbi. Like, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you are following someone who said no in the very beginning of his public ministry, no to physical immediate needs, no to wealth, no to power and influence, and yes to those who are poor, under-resourced, overlooked, marginalized, so much so that he himself was in essence homeless. Homeless. It would have been so easy for him just to build like this giant sort of castle on the hill, you know, where he was sort of ruled down from because that's what we think those in power should do. And he said, no, no, the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to offer my life as a ransom for many, for everyone. This is where Jesus is at. This is who Jesus is with. And if you and I consider ourselves followers of Jesus, then we have to ask ourselves the hard question, are we there with him? Are we there with them? Because that is where he is. I don't know where Jesus sits, you know, with rock stars and celebrities. I don't know where Jesus is at with politicians and culture makers and all that sort of stuff. I don't know where he is at with it. I do know where he is, though, when it comes to the poor, the oppressed, the overlooked. You know that we can find him there. Mother Teresa said it herself, it is so often in the eyes of the poor and the oppressed that I see the distressed eyes of Jesus there in the midst. And so we have to come all the way back to that question. Does my family, do my friends, do my coworkers, what impression do they get about Jesus, about the poor, the oppressed, the overlooked? When it comes to my life, where would that fall on the list for me? And to be totally honest, sadly, if they were to say what matters most to me and what obviously must matter most to Jesus, well, obviously Jesus uh, is in a Starbucks every day because that's what matters most to Jarrett. So Jesus must be drinking, you know, gallons of coffee every day. And Jesus must, you know, that what matters most to Jarrett is that Jarrett's usually at a church or works at a church and spends a lot of time at church. And so I guess that's where Jesus, that's what must matter to Jesus, right? Because that's the impression that I get from Jarrett. The impression that I get from Jarrett is that when he gets home, that's his time, right? That's his time to kind of come down and to check all the shows that he's TiVo'd from the day before. And 
that must, I guess Jesus is into TiVo because Jarrett's into TiVo, and so that must matter to Jesus. It really must matter to Jesus how he, how he looks and making sure that everything kind of is up to date and he's got this kind of thing going on, this vibe. That, that really must have mattered to Jesus. I'm sure he had like skinny robe or whatever was in in that day because that clearly is what matters to Jared. That must be what matters to Jesus. If, if your friends, your coworkers, those who know you, if they were to look at your life and say what matters most to you, does it line up with what Jesus led with here in Luke chapter 4? And what's so easy, again, like last week where we learned how rich we really are, in a moment like this, is just like you can stop for a moment and go, okay, crap, yeah, it's me, all right? I'm the one that doesn't care about the poor. Like you just feel that overwhelming sense of guilt, right? Is that, maybe it's just me? My hunch is it's not just me. It's like, okay, yeah, I don't think about that. I'm sorry. I I think about it, but I don't do anything about it. I know it's important. It's just my life is so full right now. I'm barely making it as it is. My, cl- my calendar is full. My days are so packed. I, I, I want to. I just, I, I can't. It's just, you don't understand. It's, it's, it's just too much, you know? And we go to this place of, of guilt and, and, and shame and, and obligation, right? That's easy to do. And if I wanted to, like, we could even go further into that. You know, I could put up like this, like, you know, nice black and white picture of someone who's homeless or a child in India right now. We could just play this really soft kind of pad, the synth pad on the keys and put up a Mother Teresa quote behind it and statistics right behind it. We could make you feel so guilty if we wanted to right now. And a lot of churches do. And a lot of Christian charity is really funded by that kind of guilt you know, bloated skinny kids on TV at night and, and, and that's supposed to motivate you to do something. And a lot of people do. And that's not wrong. That's great. That's charity. That's, charity is wonderful. Uh, but, you know, as Dr. Cornell West says, like, charity is not justice. Giving a dollar is, is, is great. That's fine. That's charity and that's wonderful. But that's not justice. Justice is what love looks like in public. Justice is what's at the heart of Jubilee is that the poor are given hope and encouragement, that they're known, that those who are imprisoned are set free, that those who are oppressed are released. That, that, that's at the heart of it. That's what we're talking about here. And so guilt, if that's the deal, then you're missing the entire point because Jesus is saying, no, it's freedom, it's sight, it's recovery, it's jubilee. You can't even say the word without getting what it's all about. And so you and I, as we consider the poor, as we consider the way of Jesus, a homeless Messiah, there are some things maybe that we need to reconsider about our lives, isn't there? And for me, honestly, this has been a heart. We're trying to figure out as a family, how do we do that? How do we live in a culture that tells me that it's all about me, and yet for it to be all about me means that someone else suffers? That for me to have what I want, that means that someone else somewhere doesn't get what they deserve. It's just kind of the dark side of our uh, wonderful American project is that there is this overlooked, under-resourced reality that you don't have to go across the world to see. You walk right out these steps and see it. Every Tuesday night, you walk right down the street and you see it. So where does your heart go in those moments? Does it go to a place of joy, freedom, recovery, restoration, jubilee, an opportunity to join with Jesus in relationship with those 
who are overlooked? Or does it go to a place of some opinion you formed that your parents gave you that every time you drove into a tough neighborhood, they locked the doors? Or that your opinion is that you just give them a dollar and that, that'll satisfy your guilt at least for this week? Like, I think there's another way. I just think there's another way that Jesus has given enough creativity and courage to you in this room, in your life, that there's another way. There's another way. And it's going to take you reconsidering some of the things that you've put to the top of the list. It's going to take you saying literally, all right, so if this is going to, if this matters so much to Jesus, it's going to matter to me, it's going to take some of time. It's going to take some of my resources. It's going to take some of my energy. It's going to take me getting creative. It's going to take me and some friends getting together and really asking God and seeking, what could we do to be a part of this sort of restoration that Jesus made so clearly important in the Gospels? What's that going to look like? That's a beautiful thing. I can't tell you. I don't live in Charlotte. I don't know. You live here. And you have opportunities. God has uniquely gifted you to try and figure that out. We're trying to figure out what that means for us as a family. How do we model to a three-year-old that sort of compassion and justice? What does that look like in the gifts that, and the stuff and the crap that we buy him and not buy him? What does that look like in how we give him our time and our resources? What does that look like for you? With your job, I have a friend back in Chicago who knew that he had just, he had gotten so far on the corporate deal. He had done it, like he had a very successful job, had a very nice condo. He kind of had the whole deal, the convertible, you know, I think it was a Miata because that's what was important at the time. And so like he had the the whole deal going on and he realized, dude, I'm not going to, I am so far from this in Luke 4 that he gave that up and moved into one of the poorest neighborhoods in our area. Moved into an apartment complex that was half the size of his condo and just began to be neighbors with those who most everyone else in the world around them overlooked. And he just lived and said, hey, here I am. I'm a neighbor. God, what do you want to do in me and through me? Maybe it means something like that for you. Maybe it means something with your weekends. I don't know, but I know that God does, and I know that Jesus is inviting every one of us to join with him in that kind of joy and jubilee and relationship. And so here's what I want to do. I want us to consider what that means for you, personally. And maybe tonight, Lord, one of the best things you can do if you're here with some friends is to not just kind of rush out and like, you know, go out and, and, and just kind of forget what happened this evening, but to get time together and go, okay, wait a second, seriously, if this mattered so much to Jesus, and in fact, if I follow a homeless Messiah, what would that mean? What could we be about? Not just acts of charity, but acts of love and and justice and compassion. What would that look like? That might be the best conversation you have this entire week, and it might lead to an entirely new trajectory for your life as you follow Jesus to where he's already at with the poor, the oppressed, the overlooked. Maybe tonight, like, if you're not here with friends, it's something for you just to kind of go home and start praying about and right now going, okay, God, what what needs to be reconsidered and reordered in my life for this to become one-tenth of how significant and important it is to you? What would that mean? So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Like, what's so great about a space like this is, I mean, Josh and the music and everything tonight, it's like, it's so wonderful. And for me, you know what ends up happening lots of times is when I'm in a room like this or space like this, it's so easy for me to raise my hands and, you know, like, I just, I'm kind of expressive and I'm just like a happy dancing white guy. Like, I just kind of get caught up in, like, I can do that, you know, and that's really easy to do. I think what's significantly more difficult for me to do is to open my hands in service and instead of kind of facing up to whoever's leading worship, whoever's in front, to turn it out to the world around me and go, here I am. Here I am to serve. 
Here I am to follow in the footsteps of my homeless Savior. And I want to make my life, my time, my resources available so that this goes from the bottom of the list higher and higher and higher up to begin to match the heartbeat of Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to do something a little weird. I'm going to ask you just to stand up right now and turn around and face the doors that lead out to the streets of the city. So go ahead. Everyone needs to stand up and turn around. And I ask just in silence, if you would, right now to just think about the world outside these walls. It's so easy for us in a time and space like this to worship, to gather, to do all that. And that's all important. It's all good. But God has you here for whatever reason in this season and has uniquely gifted you and given you great courage that you may not even know about and incredible creativity that's unleashed through the Holy Spirit to be an agent of love and compassion and justice to those who are otherwise overlooked, under-resourced, and even oppressed. What will it mean for you to follow Jesus there to them with him? And so we're just going to stand in silence now. If you need to name some things to God right now, name them. Confess your resistance. Confess maybe opinion formed. Pray for courage, creativity. God, I am the first to admit that this is a whole lot easier for me to talk about than it is for me to do. And it's a whole lot easier, God, for me to invite others to a place that I am often too busy or too self-obsessed or concerned to go. And you know my heart, God, and you know Jeannie's heart and our family's heart, and you know the hearts of those gathered in this room, God. We We know of all the things that top the list, God, of all the things that we've made important or that our world assumes is important to us, it's just clear, Jesus, that you love and care for those who are overlooked, those who are under-resourced, those who are oppressed. And you're inviting us to do the same, to follow you there and to find you there. And so I just pray for those who are part of Charlotte One that this would not be just an event that they come to, that this would be something that actually changes this city. And that this city actually, their opinion and impression of Christianity and of Jesus would begin to erode and give way by the beautiful love of Jesus as it's acted out in little acts of surrender and service and love, and compassion, and justice, God, in this city. And that while there's a ton of other things, God, that may be said about us, may it be said of my life, and may it be said of those gathered here, that we loved, and cared for, and knew those who'd been overlooked and forgotten in our world. God, we don't have to go around the world. It's right here outside our doors. We pray that you'd give us the eyes of Jesus, that we would see the heart of Jesus that would break and flow with compassion and the hands of Jesus that would offer our lives, our time, our resources up to say, whatever you want, God, I'll do it. Whatever the sacrifice be, I'll make it because I love you and I've committed my life to following you. May be true of my life and those gathered here. 
We pray this in the name of our homeless Messiah, Jesus Christ. Amen.